When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And coming up on Hopping Mad today, I discuss yesterday's German election, while Arliss has the first of many interviews, which she conducted this weekend at the MMT conference in Kansas City. The first of these incredible interviews is with Zach Carter. And oh, you've got to hear it. It's amazing. We have a wonderful team here at Hopping Mad, so normally I'd be joined by one of our team members, but due to a minor comedy of errors, which were entirely my fault, it's just me running this part of the show, so it will be a slightly shorter show than normal, but there is still a lot to discuss, starting with the Hopping Mad Lying Liar Lie of the Week. So, there are two major candidates for the Lie of the Week, one we've all heard, which is that the new Crump Care Bill actually covers pre-existing conditions. It does not. Because it's 2017 and the world has turned upside down, a U.S. congressman got completely schooled by talk show host Jimmy Kimmel this week, who appears to know more about the U.S. healthcare system than Bill Cassidy, who lied to Kimmel's face, or Lindsey Graham and the other Republicans who keep saying that this bill protects pre-existing conditions, which it doesn't. It offers states an opt-out from the pre-existing conditions coverage enforced by Obamacare. It allows them to redefine it, and it doesn't cover pre-existing conditions at all. And I think it just proves one of the statements that uh, my grandfather once made to me as a joke, which is, if at first you don't succeed, lie like a Republican. Which is basically their approach to healthcare repeal at this stage. Our second lie has to do with Moody's downgrading of the UK's credit rating over Brexit. Moody's did so because the UK government is not meeting its own economic goals, making their actions untrustworthy. Specifically, they're not meeting their own goals about public spending. Now... This kicked off another round of insufferably false public spending are bad debates, when really the situation proves what we critics of austerity have been saying all along, which is that austerity robs economies of liquidity and will force increases in government spending just to stay afloat when it really would be wiser to use public spending to invest in the economy and grow it. And it's not so much about public spending, but about how public money is spent and where is it, where it's spent and the intentions of that spending. We should be spending to grow our economies. And while there's this chorus of bad information, most of it isn't an outright lie, it's just false. Except what the British government said 
in response to Moody's downgrade, which, and I'm not making this up, is that Theresa May made a speech on Friday, so Moody's statements are invalid. That's it. That's their defense. And just because it's such a blatant disregard for reality and math, that's our lie of the week. Speeches do not invalidate economic data or projections. You can't orate yourself out of an economic train wreck. You have to work yourself out of one. And, by the way, just as an aside, the Labour Party is inflicting yet another unnecessary wound on itself by refusing to allow its members to even discuss Brexit at the 2017 Labour Conference. The most important issue facing the UK is Brexit, and rather than leading the fight, Labour is choosing not to even bother participating in the discussion. I don't often agree with folks like Chika Muna, but... I've often said you can't defeat the right and their stupid ideas by agreeing with them, but you also can't defeat them if you decide to not even bother fighting them. But this is primarily an economic discussion, and I think I'm doing our listeners a disservice by discussing them without Arliss here, so we're going to save the meat of this conversation for next week when Arliss returns, and I'll discuss current developments with Brexit. And now, a bit of news. In a lot of ways, my father's hometown is Jacksonville, Florida. I still have family there. And I don't often get to feel proud of Jacksonville, though I want to. What's at once amazing and saddening about a place that still calls itself the new bold city of the South is the sheer amount of missed opportunity for the city, for its growth and its progress, and for the Democratic Party and the left wing in so many ways. It's an upsetting place because of so many dreams that have gone unrealized. I don't usually get to be proud of Florida, though I want to be proud of it. And I think if we as Democrats and we as the left can do some work, we can help Florida grow in a lot of important ways. But I'm proud of something that happened in Jacksonville last night. For the first time in the history of the NFL, a franchise owner joined his players in protest. The owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, Shahid Khan, came out, stood arm in arm with his players, and took a knee during the national anthem. He later released a statement, it was a privilege to stand on the sidelines with the Jacksonville Jaguars today for the playing of the U.S. National Anthem at Wembley Stadium. I met with our team captains prior to the game to express my support for them, all NFL players, and the league following the divisive and contentious remarks made by President Trump, and was honored to be arm-in-arm with them, their teammates, and our coaches during our anthem. Our team and the National Football League reflects our nation, with diversity coming in many forms, race, faith, our views, and our goals. We have a lot of work to do, and we can do it, but the comments made by the president make it harder. That's why it was important for us, and personally for me, to show the world that even if we differ at times, we can and should be united 
in the effort to become better as people and as a nation. I get to be proud of Florida today. And I get to be proud of Jacksonville today. And I get to take pride in one of our national football teams today. So well done to Shahid Khan in what is going to be an iconic moment in the history of the game. And well done to the Jacksonville Jaguars. But I do have a bit of a warning. As beautiful as it is that Trump's attack on the NFL has united the NFL and brought the institution and its players into alignment, and as much as it makes me overjoyed to know that a politician has picked a fight with one of America's most powerful cultural institutions, one that he won't win because presidents come and go, but football is forever, I'd like to remind us to pay attention to other stories this week. Trump picked this fight intentionally because he thinks this is going to be a bad week for him. The federal investigation into his actions and his allies advances every day, and he seems to be expecting another major loss on Obamacare repeal. Let that be true. So while we can rejoice that one of America's major cultural institutions clashing with the presidency has brought Americans together, we really should pay attention to these other stories. The NFL as a cultural icon is important, but it's not the only story this week, and we should remember that. So let's celebrate, but let's also peer behind the curtain and pay attention to the things that the Trump regime would rather us not notice. Coming up, I'll be talking about the German election. Just as a personal note, a preface, I'd like to say... Uh, with deepest apologies to any German speakers listening. Meine Mutter wurde in Heidelberg geboren. My mother was born in Heidelberg. I grew up hearing German spoken in my grandparents' house on occasion, though I'm far from fluent. I wasn't taught it as a child, and I only know a few phrases, such as the one I just spoke. I heard stories about the fall of the Berlin Wall, about my grandfather being invited back by his German friends as a former member of the Army Corps of Engineers to participate in bringing it down. I heard stories about the Cold War in Germany, about being in Berlin and seeing the wall, about these heartrending exercises they used to run, where my grandfather would witness a simulated nuclear war and about seeing a simulated nuclear device go off right where his family was sleeping. He said it really brought things home for him. I remember other stories about my grandparents joining a German church and learning the language, my grandmother teaching voice and leading that church's choir about my mother when she went back to Germany to visit her godfather at the end of his life, about her remembering how to speak broken German as they said goodbye to each other. I remember eating Rolladen and developing a, an affection for German cuisine, for Blutwurst and, and Rotkraut and Kaxlerippchen and, of course, Weissbier. I'm not German. And I don't think that the deep affection I have for the country of my mother's birth and early childhood and for its people gives me any kind of special 
insight, except to know how much I simply don't know as someone who's not fluent in German, and how lacking I find most English reporting on the largest country in Europe. Especially as, with its history, the modern politics of Germany are complex to the point of being Byzantine and nearly incomprehensible. The history of fascism that still haunts the country, the divide that is still healing in many ways between the former Bonner Republic and former German Democratic Republic, the weight of being a de facto leader of the EU and the only NATO member that has a long special relationship with the Russians due to the history of the Volga Germans and the GDR, all these complexities make modern Germany a difficult place to discuss. But as an American with an affection for Germany who tries to keep up with what's going on there, I'm going to do my best to discuss a complicated and dangerous political situation to the best of my ability. That's coming up next on Hopping Out. So Germany had an election yesterday and <sighs> it's really difficult to talk about both emotionally and and rationally. For the first time since the Second World War, hard-right German nationalists, alternative for Deutschland, will be taking seats in the German Bundestag, which is their federal assembly. It was a good night as well for the far-left Die Linke party, as well as for the German Green party with Zem Ozdemir, the leader of the Green Party, saying that his joy at their result is mixed with concern. Nationally, Alternative for Deutschland took 13% of the vote, or thereabouts, which is a fairly terrifying result for folks. And what's even scarier is they came in fourth in former West Germany, but in former East Germany, where people have experienced living under an authoritarian and totalitarian regime, 20% of the voters supported AFD. AFD came in second place in former East Germany. And the results of this election are pretty shocking for a lot of Germans. But let's go through where Germany is and what their options are. AFD somehow won the election by taking third place overall behind the Christian Democratic Union and the Social Democrats. Just like 
Labour won the last UK election by losing, and Theresa May and the Tories lost it by winning it. Politics in Europe is pretty chaotic right now. And some of the reaction to this is, first, we know that what the CDU did, the Christian Democratic Union, Angela Merkel's party, they tried to take a more moderate stance. They tried to moderate their positions, do some of that compassionate conservatism stuff. But we know that taking a more conservative stance simply won't work. And we know that because the Christian Democratic Union, uh, Angela Merkel's party, is the largest right-wing party in Germany, but it exists in alliance with the social, uh, the Christian Social Union, which is kind of like the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party in that it's sort of a separate party-ish, but it forms the union faction in the German Bundestag, and the CSU operates only in Bavaria, while the CDU operates everywhere else. So it's, it's an independent branch of the CDU that operates only in Bavaria. And... Compared to Merkel's CDU, the Bavarian party took a hard, a hard right stance, and they did worse in Bavaria than the CDU did nationally. And what that means is that as Merkel looks to form a coalition, there's real worry that the hard right CSU will be the tail that wags the CDU dog. And, and the CDU did take a more moderate stance, but still lost seats. Now... Before this election, they had been in coalition with the German Social Democratic Party, the largest left-wing party in Germany, led by a man named Martin Schulz. But because of some significant friction in that coalition, and because of frustrations by the German people towards this grand coalition, saying the parties were becoming too close together and losing their distinctiveness and making people feel like their political positions weren't being taken seriously, the SDP decided to refuse to take part in the coalition this time around, and promised that if they didn't win the election, they'd be going into opposition. And they didn't do particularly well either. Both they and the CDU lost seats to a right-wing proto-fascist party, alternative for Deutschland, alternative for Germany, the AFD. Which, they hate immigrants, they think that Islam has no place in Germany and is incompatible with German values, which, if I remember correctly, is pretty much exactly what a previous German party argued about Jews by the way, and they've said that Germany ought to be proud of its soldiers from both world wars. Yeah, Germany should be proud of what it did militarily in World War II, according to AFD. Although they specify that they mean the regular German military and not the SS, because there really was a difference between one group of people who committed atrocities and another group of people who also committed atrocities. And I mentioned, of course, that uh, it's it's fascinating that the AFD did well, uh, much better in former East Germany than they did in former West Germany. And in East Germany, they took one in five votes that were cast. It makes me think about Lenny Riefenstahl's quote about the submissive void and this desire within the German public to submit to something. But I'm I'm not sure I'm quite qualified 
to comment on German culture at this point. Especially since there are going to be plenty of completely unqualified journalists talking about a political situation which is complicated, difficult to understand, and hard to explain, especially for those of us who don't speak fluent German. I did take an opportunity this evening to talk with some some folks in Germany, kind of taking the, the taxi driver approach where you sit in a taxi and, and talk to Germans, except for I use social media to do this. And a lot of the Germans I spoke to are terrified and furious and experiencing a lot of adverse reactions. I didn't run into any AFD supporters. And to be fair, they're only 13% of the German public and tend to skew older. Uh, and they're pretty divided in what they think ought to be done about this problem. They, Their responses ranged from wanting total and complete opposition to wanting to protest so hard that they break into AFD headquarters buildings, which apparently happened this evening, to arguing that AFD should be respected not because they deserve respect, but to avoid the politics of grievance and give the buffoons enough rope to hang themselves with. And the makeup of the German Bundestag is going to reflect that kind of division in German politics. Now, what most politics watchers and pundits are talking about internationally, especially those of us who haven't really read up on German politics, is that the most likely thing for German politicians to do is to form a political bloc whose colors would match those of the Jamaican flag. That would be Merkel's CDU, whose colors are black, the Greens, who are green, obviously, and the Free Democratic Party, which is yellow. And the Free Democratic Party is a group of neoconservatives who say basically nothing about foreign policy ever, except for that globalization is good, and who vociferously opposed denazification in the 1950s and to make things even more of a headache there's also the CSU that Bavarian branch of the CDU led by Horst Seehofer who've taken a hard right stance that complicates all this even more Uh, so let's be clear this coalition that all the foreign journalists are saying is what's going to happen and what Angela Merkel is going to do is a coalition made up from right to left the FDP a party is so far economically right that they think the only solution to any problem is deregulation and privatization, because we saw how well that worked in 2009. A party slightly to the left of them, which basically agrees with them, but wouldn't publicly admit to it, but is also socially conservative enough to want gays to just not be gays and not marry or adopt, and the reason I say gay folks and not LGBT folks is because they don't understand the difference. And that's the CSU, of course. And then the CDU, which is the CSU with a gentler brand, which takes a more centrist stance and moderates their social positions a bit, and their economic positions a bit. That's Merkel's party. And then the Greens who are so super into being their own left-wing ideological group and who care about their ideological cred that they refuse to be members of a party that is nominally left-wing but has a better chance of winning elections 
And who compromises? The Greens did better because a lot of Germans don't want a party that compromises. And so their reason for existing, the Greens, who did better in this election, is to be an alternative to the Social Democrats. And these folks, I mean, when that's the whole green reason d'etre, to be a leftier alternative to the Social Democratic Party, a less compromising version of that party, who favor gay rights while the CSU opposes them, who favor regulation and greater regulation while the FDP wants to gut regulation, you'll have a political party in coalition where one party wants to privatize roads and another party wants to nationalize the energy industry and close down coal plants, where one party is super not comfortable with the gays, one party doesn't care, one party is only moderately uncomfortable, and another party is fully in support of LGBT equality. A German journalist that I've been trying to follow along with a couple of others his name's Thomas Bauman, and he's a veteran of Germany's public broadcaster. He said last night that this is Merkel's only route to government, and also it is completely unrealistic. He couldn't imagine how these parties could possibly get along. They lacked, he said, a Grundmelody, the, the basic harmony that coalitions require to function. This coalition is like trying to shove four equally sized square pegs, which contained magnets designed to repulse each other, into a round hole that couldn't fit a single one of them, even if you shaved them down a bit, to make a metaphor almost as needlessly complicated and incomprehensible as the current German political climate. The best quote here comes from Merkel herself. There are no natural coalitions. Everyone is fighting for themselves. Germany today has no good options. If it was my call, I'd argue that the CDU should form a minority government and try to pass legislation on a case-by-case, multi-party platform. But, But in that kind of chaos, the people who would tend to benefit most would probably not be those parties who worked with each other and entered into coalitions in a coalition-weary nation, but those parties on the fringes, such as AFD and Die Linke, which is an old-style socialist party of the state capitalism variety. But let me be clear, I'm not comparing them to AFD because they issue violence and violent rhetoric. They're nevertheless fairly extreme and some very dated Marxist-Leninist thinking Although they have evolved to their credit on on things like green energy and technological development and the space race, which most Western hard leftists tend to eschew as distractions from causes of economic justice and seizing the means of production. And they also definitely support democracy and aren't going to shut down elections or do anything totalitarian. That's not Dilinka. They're not dangerous like AFD is, but they are fairly extreme in their economic viewpoints, and they are the old-style hard left. The conventional wisdom here is that Germans are tired of the grand coalition that existed between the largest left-wing and right-wing parties, but as this election shows, they're too divided on what they actually want 
to give any single party a, a majority. If things fall apart and become chaotic, some of the worst news is that the Social Democratic Party, which, like our Democratic Party, has some factions and is a big tent, risks fracturing along pro-coalition and anti-coalition lines. There's a leadership vacuum, and at the time of recording, the political grapevine says the leader of the SDP, Schultz, might resign due to the election loss, or maybe he'll just hand over control of the opposition activities. It's complicated, of course, because everything is right now. Frankly, I and the rest of the international press at the time of recording, who don't speak German fluently, know very little about what the Social Democratic Party is planning to do, because they haven't told us yet. So people are just running the rumor mill right now. And, of course, Germans are waking up to the fact this morning that the ideological heirs to the Nazi party have taken 13% of the vote. So there's that. And, of course, that party had the backing of Russian state actors on social media as they waged yet another disinformation campaign against a Western democracy. Germany has been attacked by the Russian government in the same way that the United States was attacked. It's a bit rich that the Russians still sing the songs of what they call the Great Patriotic War while backing fascist movements across the West. I genuinely wish I spoke Russian. I'd love to have conversations with Russians about how the actions of their government are dishonoring the 20 million Soviet citizens who died in the war against fascism. And if I was Russian, I'd be disgusted and horrified by Putin's actions, as a lot of Russians, in fact, are. But that is another story for another day. Coming up, we have the first of many interviews recorded by Arliss at the MMT conference. It's with Zach Carter, and it's amazing. I think you're going to love it. Stay tuned. needs little introduction to listeners of Hopping Mad since I quote from his article so frequently. Zach is one of a cadre of young, must-read journalists who cover economic and financial news. He's the senior political economy reporter for HuffPost and in the past served on the steering committee for Americans for, for, for Financial Reform. And you'll recognize that group because that's where Alexis Goldstein and Amanda Warner uh, are from. And they've both been on this show too. If you aren't following Zach on Twitter, you should be. Uh, Zach, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So before I ask you about economics, you went to UVA Charlottesville, and it may well be too soon to ask this, but do you think that, like Ferguson, Charlottesville is going to be an inflection point when we look back on this? You know, it's it's hard for me to say what it's going to look like in the future. I think, um, I think it already is a, a sort of symbol of what's happening in the country um, for, for the moment. And I... I 
I mean, I lived there for eight years, and I think Charlottesville is a unique place in a lot of ways because of uh, the legacy of Thomas Jefferson, who's there. Who, so, so much of um, everything that's good and bad about our idea of America is, is wrapped up in, in Thomas Jefferson and, and, and that legacy. And I think that's one reason why all of these Nazis and white nationalists chose it to be the place where they wanted to fight. Um, but in a lot of other ways, I mean, because it's a symbol of, of America, I think the problems in Charlottesville that, that exist, that Charlottesville is trying to deal with, are problems that exist throughout most <laughs> of the country as, as well. Um, it doesn't mean there are going to be Nazi riots in every single small town in the country, but I think I actually think there's a lot. I, I think we can learn a lot from what activists in Charlottesville have been trying to do over the last you know, 20 or 30 years, and also the way activists have responded to, uh, to, to what happened there this, this summer. So... Uh, given all the demands on your time, because you've got to be a pretty busy guy, uh, why are you in Missouri with this little, you know, squeaky wheel corner of economics? Well, the short answer is personal. I've known uh, Stephanie Kelton for a long time. I think she's a great economist, and um, she called and asked if I wanted to participate, and so that seemed like something fun. Stephanie's great, and I actually, I used to play in rock bands before I was a journalist, and I ha- I really like Kansas City, so it's uh, it's it's a pretty it's a unique and, and excellent city. Uh, also, it's an opportunity to talk to Robert Skidelsky, who is a really terrific biographer of John Maynard Keynes. I'm working on a biography of Keynes myself right now, so our conversation on uh, it'll be. Sunday night here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to just just being able to talk to him and pick his brain. Uh, sort of, uh, so NMT is a really interesting field because it's fundamentally Keynesian in this very important way. But they're also dealing with uh, ideas and elements of Keynesianism that he himself didn't really see as central to the thought uh, when he was developing the theory, and yet they're they're dealing with solutions to problems that are very similar to the types of solutions that he was proposing back in the 20s and 30s. So, do you think of yourself as an MMT guy? I'm not not an MMT guy. I, I, I'm sort of hostile to, to uh, doctrines in general because I think they, they sort of lead people into corners where they, they get into fights with people from different doctrines and it makes it harder for, for people who see the world like a little bit differently to get along and reach common ground for practical purposes. Uh, but I think there's... A, I think the basic conception of, of how money works and where it comes from is, is basically right. And I, I, don't, I don't think it needs to be a controversial thing. I don't think it needs to be like MMTs over here at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and they hate the people in Chicago, and they hate the people at MIT. You know, it's, it's, I mean, we, we kind of know how money works, and the insights that the MMT people are talking about, I mean, this stuff is in Keynes, it's in Adam Smith. Um, so, so sure, I'm an MMT guy, but I'm also not an MMT guy. I, I don't think it needs to be uh, this, this sort of separate school of thought, I guess. So we recently had Amanda Werner on to talk about, from AFR, to talk about Dodd-Frank and this axe that's basically hanging over the head of the CFPB. Uh, what do you think the Senate's going to do on the legislation that came through the House on Dodd-Frank limitations and CFPB? I don't know if they're going to have legislative time to deal with it. Um, if you look at what has just happened over the course of the past year, I mean, we're now in the third iteration of attempting to repeal Obamacare. We'll see if they get it through. I'm, I don't think the prospects for the Republicans are terribly good right now. Um, but, of course, if, if they want to push something through under reconciliation, there's a lot of stuff under Dodd-Frank that you can get through uh, on, on a 50-vote threshold. Um there's a lot of stuff you can't. I, I, I just don't think that this is a 
maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I don't think that this is a Congress that is uh, capable of getting together the legislative majorities that are necessary to pass to pass big legislation. I think it's going to be a real struggle for them just to keep the government open and to not willfully default on our debt, which I'm sure everybody here at the MMT conference can talk about how silly that is to be talking about. Um, so I, I'm not terribly pessimistic about about Dodd Frank's prospects. My big bigger concern for Dodd Frank is just that it won't be implemented very well. I think we had problems with its implement, implementation under President Obama, and I think the Trump administration has made abundantly clear that they have no interest in enforcing any of the more important provisions of the law. So given that, which actually ties perfectly into my next part of this question, is Dodd-Frank still a cross worth dying on or, um, you know, basically is the Trump administration already burned it down from the inside out? Yeah, it's a, I mean, I think that's a really important question. I think uh, the, certainly uh, there are institutional things that have changed, like the CFPB. I, the Trump administration can do a lot of really bad things to the CFPB, but without legislation, they really can't do a whole lot of permanent damage. They can appoint people who will not enforce laws uh, when Richard Cordray's uh, appointment is up, uh, which is we have like a year left, a few months left on that. Um, so that and that you know that will be. Uh, I, th- I think that's going to happen. I don't think there's much that anybody can really do to stop it. Um, but that said, you know, in five years there will be a different CFPB director. Uh, part of part of the democratic process is winning elections, and you've you've got to be able to win elections if you want. However good your laws are and your your institutions are, you need competent people in charge who actually care about the mission of the institution if it's going to succeed. Uh, but outside of the CFPB, I don't see a whole lot of room for optimism. I mean, I, 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 don't, I think the way the Volcker Rule was written and the way it's been implemented, it's borderline useless to begin with. Um, so the fact that it's not going to be enforced is uh, sad. But uh, you, you, it would take a Herculean effort from multiple agencies to turn that into something really valuable. Um, the fact that the financial sector still cries about it means that there is something there, right? So they, they, they wouldn't be whining if, the, if there was really no point at all. Uh, but, but I think the, the idea that the Volcker Rule is going to protect us from, you know, from another meltdown or something is, is not correct. And I, th- I think the derivatives provisions too, I mean, we, we know that there are, those are very complex provisions. And for them, for them to work, people have to really care about making sure that they're, they're followed closely. And I, I don't think that's going to happen. So that brings me to Equifax. <laughs> and I'm not even going to ask you a specific question on Equifax. I'm just going to turn you loose on that such subject. I don't understand why we have these credit monitoring agencies, frankly. Um, there, there have been you know, people I respect have talked about how we need to just uh, amend the Fair Credit Reporting Act to make these things more accountable. Other people I respect have said we should nationalize them. Um, I, wh- why don't we ban them? Um, <laughs> I don't see why they need to exist. It's not clear to me that they, they serve any really useful social function. Um, banks know who they can... I mean, the, the, the justification is that they, they sort of make it easy for banks to make credit quality judgments about, about different types of consumers for consumer lending. Well... I think banks can probably do this without a three-digit score that uh, simplifies all of your life decisions into this one little number. Um, and we know that these things are implemented in completely ridiculous, bizarre, uh, often profoundly racist ways throughout, have been throughout, throughout history. So, you know, at, at best, it's, it's a score that indicates your income level uh, over the past. I mean, 
people who have money. There are some people who have money who don't pay their debts because they think it's fun. I mean, the president is one of these people. But for the most part, people who don't repay their debts are people who don't have the money to repay their debts. It's an income problem. It's not It's not a, a problem of personal character. It's not because people are walking around just just filled with some sort of like existential rage about, about you know, against moneylenders. Um, I, I don't think we need to have these weird private sector spies. And one way to to get rid of them is to just hold them to strict liabilities. Um, this is a huge hack. This is an in, the, the potential liability here is enormous. Just make them liable for it. They will not be able to pay it, and they will go out of business. The other institutions that do this type of work, TransUnion and the others, will see this as a as an existential threat to their business. They will either change things radically, or in a few months, you know, we will we will see them come come across another sort of problem like this, and and they will go away as well. We can only hope. So, neoliberal economics is pervasive, basically, and has been repeatedly proven to be wrong, you know, over and <laughs> over and over. Uh, and that isn't to say that there aren't, there isn't some value in some corners of it, but, um, you know, we, trickle-down economics has simply not worked, and we know that in a thousand different ways. So, and yet, it's really fundamental to current U.S. economic policy and, in fact, world economic policy. How do you keep writing about something that isn't working over and over and over? In other words, you know, I mean, don't you run out of, like, adjectives and have to start? It, it's, uh, I, well, I mean, I think even, I think the pervasiveness of neoliberal thinking is so um, profound that, we take for granted, even people who think of themselves as being neoliberal critics often just take for granted things in the neoliberal worldview about, well, you know, price controls are not a good idea. Well, you know, sometimes they are. <laughs> they, they were really important during World War II, for instance, um, but they, they could never possibly work. Um, there's a, a very, a, a, I guess the thing that bothers me about the way we've done economic thinking since the mid-1970s is just a, a, a profound narrowing of the sort of realm of possibilities for, for policymaking, that anything outside of this very, very narrow scope of, of tactics is just automatically illegitimate because it will mess with the sort of automatic prosperity-generating features of, of the market. And, look, I, I think markets are really useful in a lot of ways, but we stare problems right in the face and say that they're not problems because market ideology defines them as not problematic. And I, I you know, I don't think we, one of, one of my favorite lines from John Maynard Keynes is in uh, this 1929 pamphlet he, he writes for the Liberal Party for the elections they're having. It's called Can Lloyd George Do It? And it's just about how he wants to do a public works program to build roads and telephone wires and things like that. And and he says something along the lines of, you know, this is just common sense. My, my, we, have, we have work that needs to be done. We have people who want to do work. Why don't we just have them do the work? It takes an enormous amount of intellectual acrobatics to convince people that this is a bad idea. And, and I, think, I think that the fact that we have this sort of intellectual acrobatics industrial complex, right, that's it, called the economics profession, um, means that there's always a lot of demystification work that people can do. And so you don't run out of things to, to write about. Yes, it does get it does get frustrating after a certain amount of time. But most economic John Kenneth Galbraith said this. I mean, most economic problems 
and concepts can be explained relatively simply to people by people who are willing to do the explaining. And a lot of the economics profession is just built up to make things seem much more complicated than they actually are. And you have to be part of, you have to learn the silly language to be able to, to decode it. Um, but once you've done that, you know, I, I, most, people, most people have the intellectual apparatus to, to figure this stuff out if, if someone bothers to explain it to them. That's, a, uh, that's absolutely true, and I think that's really what my podcast spends its time doing, is trying to say, you know, well. So my final question is, and, and folks, I'll put the link to this in our website, but uh, you did an interview a couple of years ago with Hugh Hewitt, and um, it was, <laughs> it just, I was yelling at my, you know, laptop screen, basically. And um, so what I wanted to ask you was, uh, who's a bigger threat to American democracy? Um, historical figures like Alger Hiss or lazy journalists like Hugh Hewitt? <laughs> so about uh, three years ago, I did an interview with uh, Hugh Hewitt, who's a conservative radio journalist. I think he's on MSNBC now. Um, and we were going to talk about Dick Cheney. And it turned into this sort of hour-long inquiry about, like, my reading list um, among the questions that he asked me uh, was, who is Alger Hiss? He's not a Cold War expert, but he's an American bureaucrat in the 1930s, purloined documents, gave them to the Soviet Union. Um, big figure in a lot of the Red Scare stuff in the 1940s, 1950s. Um, and uh, when we did this interview, this was, Hugh saw this as a very profound thing that I was not familiar with Alger Hiss. Um, you know, I think history is important. I don't want to say that it's that it's not important. And I, you know, a lot of what I'm studying right now is about the Red Scare after the after the war. So, I, you know, I I think it's an important event. I I think that's it's fine if you want to ask people questions about this. What what bothered me about um, about the interview with Hugh Hewitt was that he repeatedly denied that the Bush and Cheney administration had ever tried to link um, Saddam Hussein to Al Qaeda. When in fact. Um, Dick Cheney did this on Meet the Press at least three times, in December of 2001, in September of 2002, and then in March of 2003, right before the invasion. Um, I think we can talk, it's important to talk about history, and, and you know, everybody, not everybody knows everything about everything. And if there are, there are journalists who are ignorant about things, if you want to point that out, I, I think that's totally fair. Um, I think it's important to get our facts right, though, when we're, when we're presenting these debates, and to pretend... Uh, maintain. I, I mean, maybe maybe he really doesn't know about this stuff. Maybe he really doesn't know about those meet the press appearances from from Dick Cheney. If so, okay. Um, now we all have a chance to, to to understand that. But I didn't see a whole lot of attention paid to that in the sort of conservative media write ups of the interview. And and I think that's important. I mean, the Iraq War is a really big part of um, where we are. Uh, it's a big part of America, the American identity right now. I mean, I think the Red Scare in the 1940s and 1950s is too. Um, but we have to be honest and we have to, we have to have a full accounting for what actually happened in, in that event. And I, I guess what bothers me about some of Hughes' journalism, I, I can't say that I follow him very closely, but certainly that interview experience, it felt like there was a team that was fighting against another team um, rather than a, a sort of uh, a mutual pursuit of truth. Um, and that... That's not unique to, to Hugh and his show. I think that's a phenomenon that happens across journalism. You see it within the Democratic Party, um, particularly. I mean, we're still relitigating the 2016 primary, like, over and over and over again. Um, on Twitter, uh, on TV. Uh, I think that factionalization is kind of dangerous. Um, and 
I, I can't say that Hugh Hewitt is the biggest threat to our democracy, but I think I think that that idea that um, you know we're not in some sense on the same team that we're opposed to each other and are, are out to get each other rather than try and find common ground and figure out a way forward, I think is is a dangerous mindset. It seemed to me that he was trying to use a gotcha moment to ignore everything else that was said, and that to me um, was. It's part of how we just aren't listening to each other. Look, there's a lot of stuff that... I, 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 I thought I was pretty open in that interview. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that everybody doesn't know. And part of being alive is learning stuff. And it's important It's important to be... Uh, I, I, you know, I had a friend um, who passed away a few years ago who used to say that um, it, it was more important to be creative and open-minded than it was to be uh, you know, brilliant and innovative. And I, I think that is... I, I, th- I, th- I think... I think it's important to acknowledge one's limitations and to and to try to learn and, and move forward. I think everybody is everybody is in that position throughout. You know, everyone is learning throughout their lives, but everyone is always in a position of massive ignorance at all times. And it's important to to be open to new information and and let it take you where it where it leads you. Thank you so much, Zach Carter, for joining us here today on Hopping Mad. We really so appreciate your time, and uh, I will continue to liberally quote from you. <laughs> thanks so much for having me and that is it for today's episode of hopping mad you can find this on stitcher itunes google play and at our website imhoppingmad.com you can find arliss bunny on twitter at at arliss bunny and you can find me on twitter at at will mcleod 99 so give us a follow and tune in next week for another interview conducted at the MMT conference. But for right now, stay tuned for K-Grow in the morning here on Netroots Radio.